Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me today are two very special guests. Colin Williamson is joining me as co-host for this episode. Colin is an artist, illustrator, and book designer residing in Kansas. He lives there with his wife, his son, and his two dogs. I'm also joined by our special guest, Bethany Cole. Bethany Cole is a writer, photographer, and watercolor artist. This fall, she will begin work on a PhD in English at the University of Arkansas, and she makes her home in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. Her artistic inspiration comes from the beauty of her surroundings as well as her favorite stories. When she isn't writing or painting, you'll find her out on a new adventure with her Australian shepherd named Bear. Thank you for coming on the show, Bethany. Thank you for having me. So I brought you on um, primarily after uh, seeing you at an event at the University of Arkansas where you talked about your translation work on a book that is called The Wanderer, a new translation for Middle Earth readers. Um, and I, I have always really been interested in the art of translation a little bit as a linguist. My uh, formal training is in Spanish literature, so I have done a lot of reading in Spanish, but I've never really tried my hand at translation. And I think translation is a really fascinating art. So I kind of want to hear from you, what what spurred your imagination to be like, I need to translate some old English poetry um, and, and kind of start this journey uh, studying translation, working in the literature you work in? So it started in my old English class, um, I guess it was a year and a half, almost two years ago um, at the University of Arkansas. And we were, of course, learning how to translate all these old poems into modern English so that we could read them. But through that process of just learning how to read the poems, I had so much fun figuring out how to translate old English into modern English. There it isn't a you know direct correlation. And trying to capture the meanings of certain words was a challenge, but it was fun. I loved finding like the perfect word to capture either, you know, a, a um, an obscure idiom, or when we had a word that could be translated multiple different ways, or that there wasn't like a a single word in English that could capture that meaning. And trying to figure out the best way to represent what was being said in this poem, I just had so much fun doing it, and I wanted to see if I could try as best as I could to capture the spirit of these old poems in their original language and then carry that over so that readers didn't lose that in the process of translation so that they could be inspired to, you know, love these poems, even if they never actually studied old English, but they'd still get that same richness, that same depth that you would get from the original. Yeah. I think the depth of your work on the wanderer is also compounded by the fact that this is not just a, a modern translation for modern readers. It's a modern translation for very specific kind of modern reader, which is, you know, the, the people who really enjoy J.R.R. Tolkien's work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
can you tell us a little bit too about why the choice to to relate it to Middle Earth and Middle Earth readers? When I was an undergraduate student, um, I took an, a class on the Lord of the Rings, and it wasn't just focused on the books themselves. It was going into Tolkien's academic career, the inspiration that he drew from ancient poetry, ancient languages, and seeing where all these ideas came from. And I loved that class. It just blew open my reading of the Lord of the Rings. So when I when I took that class, we studied The Wanderer very briefly, just a few passages of it. So when we got into Old English class in my master's degree, and I saw that we were going to translate this poem, I knew I had to not just translate it, but bring to light those um, those inspirations that Tolkien drew from the poem that you know created certain characters or themes or motifs. And I wanted people to see where that came from, not just that you know, oh, he just had. Um, some kind of, you know, epic, you know, ethos in his stories. No, there were like direct correlations, even down to certain words that came from the poem that just got directly transliterated into his books. And I just, I just love that. I wanted to let other people see just the, I mean, his imagination is just so incredible. And I think people think, you know, very highly of him anyway, but seeing where all this stuff came from way deep into ancient history, it just, it's so beautiful. Do you feel like some of that translation effort that you did, you know, to relate, you know, for example, like the word Theoden, I think, uh, shows up in The Wanderer, or uh, you make reference to the Ents, um, or to Iluvatar, right? Do you feel like studying this translation, do you feel like um, kind of correlating that with, with Tolkien enriches the experience of reading some of this old stuff? I do. Um, I think, so just to give a little bit of context to Tolkien, when Tolkien was writing his his mythology, his story, he was directly trying to address problems of the 20th century um, post-war you know, world and bringing what he called, he, he felt like he had a burden to bring old light and rekindle that into the modern world and re-inspire people with, you know, ideals from the past and truths from the past. And so trying to, you know, highlight all those things in this poem and show how, you know, he was doing that, bringing these old things to light, um, I think is just incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I love that you say that. Um, I've taught world literature, uh, both at the University of Arkansas and Northwest Arkansas Community College for years. And I feel like I'm always struggling to to really connect the the students that I have with the literature that they're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so difficult to for them to see the the correlation between like, yeah, you're a human in the 21st century. Uh, but were your concerns really that radically different from the concerns of yesteryear, right? Yeah. So is there a way that we can connect to um the this old literature in a very human way and and one of the ways that i do that is through pop culture right like mm. i'll take for example um journey to the west and i will relate it directly to dragon ball and i'll i'll show them the the similarities and say like listen this stuff hasn't really left and i mm. think what i love about the wanderer is that you do that really directly you're like listen here's this tentpole of fantasy you know for the entire 20th century 
but it's it's not you know it, he didn't just make this up wholesale it comes from this very specific literature and i i feel like you've opened a door to some people to maybe discovering some of that i love that that's exactly what i was hoping to do um this semester i've been teaching english comp 2 at the university and that class is an overview of different genres not literary genres specifically right. but just any kind of you know um, composition that you might write, whether it's researched argument or or even a literary genre, like fairy tales is one of the things we cover. And I oriented that class around the theme of storytelling and storytelling genres in particular. We started off by looking at fairy tales. And my goal for that class was obviously to teach them how to do you know all these different um, writing projects, but to also situate them in this idea of storytelling as being a deeply human Thing that we've been doing since the beginning of human history and that storytelling genres, while I think in our, our utilitarian society have kind of become a luxury and we think that they're not as useful. So therefore we don't prioritize them as much. And so what I wanted to do in this class was overturn that idea and show them that, look, storytelling is one of the deepest ways that we can communicate ideas and express our deepest questions as, you know, human persons. And um, so we talked a lot about like mythology and modern mythology and how those kinds of tropes are continuing to be used, even though, you know, we may think of mythology as something that took place, you know, early history, it's still going on in just new forms and in new, new ways. I absolutely love that approach. Like, I, I really have to tell you as, as a fellow educator, um, oh, does that speak to just everything that I want, <laughs> you know, in a, a classroom, in a class setting? So what were, have been some of the texts that you've looked at and what has some of the response been from some of your students? So we started off with fairy tales um, and we looked at just what fairy tales are in general. And then we read on fairy stories. We read Tolkien's uh, classic essay on it. I, I did an abridged version of it for them because it's it's fairly long for a freshman student to tackle. And so we just we broke it down and analyzed it and looked at how he redefined myth, or rather, I brought back an old definition of myth as not something that's a falsehood, but a way of indirectly communicating truths. And um took that idea and ran with it through any storytelling genre that we that we looked at. So in the class, we have a little bit of flexibility about which genres we can cover. We can cover things like researched arguments or journal articles and podcasts and all different kinds of things. And so every once in a while, I would bring in a storytelling genre, like a digital story. You can also talk about you know, graphic novels or memoirs um, and just look at how, you know, we can use, you know, these genres, um, you know, to continue expressing our, uh, expressing ourselves as human beings um, and grow as human beings. Um, some other texts that we did, um, one of my favorite texts is an essay by Annie Dillard. Um, I can't remember how long ago it was published. Um, she wrote it in the, I believe it was the late seventies, early eighties. It was total eclipse, I believe. Um, and she's telling her experience of a total eclipse in the seventies, but she tells it as a myth. She brings in all these different tropes and references to like Stonehenge um it's it's an, it's a fascinating essay and so i got to show them look here's a modern writer telling what you know would normally be just you know something like a, um what do you call it um just reporting a historical event 
and yet she used those tropes of mythology to to tell a story. Um, so that's just a few different things that we've read. Um, it's it's been a fun class. It sounds super fun. Um, <clears throat> so what what originally brought you to Tolkien um, and and to fantasy in general? Like, do you have kind of a fantasy nerd like origin story to share or something like that? It's actually kind of funny. Um, when I was a kid, I could not get enough um, reading material. I was just constantly reading, but I did not like fantasy at all. Give me historical fiction, give me biographies, and that's that's all I wanted. Um, I read the Chronicles of Narnia, but that was about it. Um, anything else just was weird to me. Fast forward to my early 20s, and my brothers were watching um, one of the Hobbit films at home. And I happened to walk in to the living room while they were watching it. And it was one of the scenes where Gandalf and the dwarves are like going over the mountains and it's just this majestic sweeping landscape and grand, you know, orchestral music. And I was just like, Hmm, this looks like a cool film. I'm going to, I'm going to sit in and watch. I was hooked. I was, I drove them nuts because the whole film, I was just pestering them with questions. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and you know, so as soon as the movie was over, this was the first Hobbit film, I think. As soon as the film was over, I went straight to Barnes & Noble and I bought all the books. I'm like, I've got to read these. I just, <laughs> I love this. And that was that was the beginning of a very long, very deep uh, nerd trip into, into Tolkien's that's a, universe. That's a great story. And I think uh, that may be one of the first instances where the Hobbit movies got people into the books because I know. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of ire about, uh, about those movies. Yeah. And it's funny because now I'm like, I have so many problems with those movies just because I'm such a purist. <laughs> and so when I tell people that it's the movies that converted me, I'm like, yes, but here's my caveat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, they're well done. They're beautiful films. Um, but I'm such a purist to the original story that I am not a big fan of them. Tolkien invested so much in his world and so much into the you know mythology and the themes. He was deeply Catholic, and a lot of that came through in the books. And so I'm a little dissatisfied with the films because they kind of shortchange a lot of that. Um, you don't get nearly the sense of the depth and the richness just by watching the films. Um, so like one of my annoying habits is if people have just seen the films, I'm like, okay, you're not a Tolkien fan. Like you've got to read the books if you're gonna, <laughs> if you're gonna call yourself a Tolkien fan. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to why I loved digging into the wanderer. I just I love how deep and how well planned out his world building is. And I just I keep digging into it and seeing just the beauty of it. And it just it's such pure literary geni genius. And so the films in my mind are just like a cheap version of, of his stories. You you pull a lot of inspiration from the whole legendarium with the wanderer. Like we can see that in the very beginning of the poem with Iluvatar. Um, mm -hmm. So pulling those sources from the Silmarillion, do you feel like that was a pretty natural um, progression, kind of diving into those stories, or was that something that you know, kind of being new to Tolkien and his work, that felt like a bigger jump? So as soon as I got into the books themselves, I had to just keep going. Um, so digging into the legendarium and the world, it just, it's been, I, the stories themselves weren't enough. I'm like, I need more. I need, I need more information. I need more stories. And so it felt very natural to me to pull that in. And I wanted to include that in the poem too, to 
kind of inspire people to dig a little deeper because obviously Louvatar is not mentioned in any of the films I don't believe um if he is it's an obscure I don't think yeah um and so I wanted to you know pick people's curiosity a little bit and uh, and get them to dig into that legendarium so uh, why the wanderer because there are a lot of different you know uh high or old english poems that you could draw from right um i we have a whole bunch of of old stuff to to dig into what spoke to you specifically about the wanderer and and this translation so one of my favorite characters is aragorn and there's so many parallels between the main character in the poem the wanderer and Aragorn himself. Um, and I loved seeing seeing those parallels and drawing those out um, just simply because he's one of my favorites. And so for me, it was a passion project um, to you know get to explore this character and explore you know the different threads that went into making him who he is. I was just gonna say, I so I'm not very familiar <laughs> with The Wanderer, uh, but I am familiar with Tolkien's works. So my uh, kind of story with your book is that um, Trevor actually gifted me your book for oh, uh, my cool. birthday uh, and I was uh, he kind of told me a little bit about it I said hey this sounds something that's right up my alley and <laughs> was able to give me this book and so I, I had the, my first experience with the wanderer uh, with the poem is is your interpretation of it oh, wow. and um I thought that I was like that's so cool that she wrote this and I can kind of see that that's uh, Aragorn as the traveler and I was just thinking man this is really cool and then learning that this was an old English poem I was like whoa this is way more in depth than I thought it was. And uh, really is just a testament to how well you can uh, kind of draw the the parallels between this poem and, and uh, the work itself. So um, anyways, just wanted to kind of share that little story. That's, that's a huge compliment. I love, I love that. Yeah. I was going to go, you know, just kind of into the word selection itself um, because, you know, I think traditionally, the wanderer has been represented as the wanderer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of get a little bit more into the the uh, etymology of this word and why you chose uh, the ranger as opposed to the wanderer. Um, and I think that speaks to what you were saying about, you know, loving Aragorn as a, a character and, and wanting to, uh, you know, kind of showcase some of that literary origin. Um, but when you go to, you know, choose words to select words based on the the so many different meanings that they could have. I mean, really, what was your direction for specific words in translation? You know, what made one word speak out to you more than, you know, another selection? So for this particular poem, it had to do with that whole goal of trying to get, you know, people who are lovers of Middle Earth to, you know, dig into these, you know, these obscure references that Tolkien was making to English, old English literature. Um, so in in particular with, you know, the wanderer versus the ranger, um, the original old English word is literally a compound word that just says earth stepper. Um, so that's why we call it the wanderer. And the problem is, is that word earth stepper, um, there's a lot of connotations to that word. Um, oftentimes it can carry some kind of like foreboding, um, almost monstrous, um, like it's this character who is intimidating. He's kind of a loner. You don't know what to do with him. You don't know if he's a scoundrel or if he's a good man. You don't know if he's, you know, some kind of rogue or what. Um, and so that's why I decided to choose the word ranger because, you know, Aragorn, before people really knew who he was, 
um, especially, you know, those outside of his, you know, inner circle. He was kind of this character they didn't know what to do with. People at the inn at Bree uh, did not, you know, did not fully trust him. They thought he was, you know, kind of, you know, lurking in the shadows and didn't quite know how to process him. And I felt like choosing the word the ranger captured what just the wanderer, you know, couldn't. Um, yes, he did wander around, obviously, but it wasn't just that he was a loner and had no home. It was more than that. And because that's in the old English, I wanted to try to bring that into the translation. Um, and so a lot of my words like that ended up being, I feel like Tolkien had a better word. And so I'd bring in a Tolkien concept or a Tolkien idea um, and use that to capture what was actually in the original Old English um, in a in an easy you know, way. I think it's so cool that you borrow some of that image, some of the uh, imagery that Tolkien used um, in his books to then bring better light to this poem. Like, uh, you just explaining the idea of the, the ranger versus the earth stepper, I think is a great way to kind of show, like we, we can visualize or under kind of better understand the life of a ranger through his works. And then that being translated to this poem kind of does the same, right? Uh, that's really cool. That's, that's a really good touch. Thanks. I feel like you, you've done a great service to this story on both ends of the spectrum, you know, the, the world lit, nerds like me who are always looking for old stuff to celebrate uh and the ones who are not world lit nerds you know but who are modern fantasy nerds who now you've you've deepened their appreciation of both you know world literature and uh modern fantasy so con you know congrats to you um thanks i feel like this is a really impressive feat thank you so the other dimension to your book, though, is, you know, you you don't just translate them um, in a linguistic sense. You also translate this book in a visual sense by providing a lot of the artwork and the watercolors that accompany, um, you know, as illustrations. So what was some of your inspiration specifically for taking this poem and then trying to create visuals to accompany it? So um, around the same time that I was taking Old English, um, I was also teaching myself watercolor. I had kind of started doing it during the pandemic just to have, you know, a new, a new hobby. Um, and I was, you know, starting to get more confident in it. I love doing landscapes. And the idea of coming up with my own illustrations to capture the mood and to capture the feeling and set the tone of the poem and set the tone of certain scenes in the poem. I love the idea of doing that. Um, you know, being... Being able to, you know, choose the specific words that I wanted, um, it felt like if I were to delegate the illustrations to somebody, I would, you know, lose some of that, um, some of that control to dictate to the readers. Here's what I'm trying to, you know, represent in this poem. Here's, you know, what I, you know, feel like the the ethos is of the poem. And so, being able to create the illustrations myself was so much fun because I had to you know not only paint them, but figure out well, what specifically am I going to paint? What would represent this particular scene? What do I feel when I think about this scene? What do I imagine? Um, and then being able to, you know, make that work for the book. It was just, it was so much fun. So did you paint uh, before, <clears throat> you know, kind of starting to teach yourself watercolor or, um, like, has this always been an impulse for you or or did you just kind of start doing it because, you know, why not? Um, I've always been 
a pretty artistic child um, growing up. Um, I loved just making pretty much any kind of arts and crafts thing. Um, but I never had painted before. Um, and so taking up watercolor, there's so many tutorials for learning how to do it, um, like on YouTube and stuff like that. And it was just an accessible um, thing for me to do. Before that, I had done a lot of photography and I love um, trying to you know, create photographs that have a painterly look. And so translating that that creative impulse into watercolor just felt kind of natural um, to me. Um, I did had no idea that it would grow as much as it did. <laughs> did not intend to illustrate a book or sell my artwork, but uh, here I am. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, I've never painted, but it's always been, you know, creativity has always been in my heart. That's really awesome. And uh, I, I went to school for art and I can say that even having professional uh, prof uh, professionals that do this all the time, teaching classes, um, picking up watercolors is not easy at all. So that's, that's really <laughs> incredible that you're able to do that. But I kind of wanted to know why watercolors. I mean, there's a lot of other mediums, even photography that you could have used to potentially uh, capture some of this, the, this imagery. Uh, what drew you to watercolors? I love the softness of watercolor, um, the way you can create light in pieces. Um, and I also just love the medium itself. It's such a romantic, beautiful medium. Um, just getting to experiment with, you know, different textures that come out with different pigments, like granulating pigments versus, you know, opaque pigments. There just seem to be um, an almost ethereal feel to a lot of the watercolors that I liked, you know, um, looking at just in, you know, trying to develop my own style. And I wanted to use that medium to capture it. Um, I'm actually now trying to teach myself acrylic, which is, uh, is that feels hard now after having done watercolor. Um, but it's a lot of fun getting to see how the different mediums uh, work. Cause I can do things with acrylic that I couldn't do with watercolor and vice versa. So. And you've, you, I mean, You've also been kind of experienced or excuse me, experimenting <laughs> a little bit with um, with like edge paintings, right? That's been a lot of fun. Um, it's it's very time consuming. But what that process is for those who aren't familiar with it, um, it's actually a, an, a from what I understand, a medieval form of art where they would take books and paint the edges of them. Oftentimes they would make hidden paintings where you could only see the painting when the book was open. Um, but it's called forage painting. Um, and it's so much fun to do. I've seen people do it like on Instagram. And I'm like, I had, I have to try this. Um, you know, so you, once you get the book clamped down tight, you just get to paint on the edges of the book. Um, I've done two, I'm getting ready to start work on a third. Um, they're slow because they're just, they're so detailed and they're so tiny. Um, but it's, it is so much fun. I could, I would love to keep doing that more and more. I'm, I plan on doing that. Like I, I I'll paint a book and then sell it. And then as soon as that one sells and I'll, I'll paint a new one. Um, it's, it's a, it's an interesting way of using watercolor because the paint doesn't work the same at all on the book as it does on watercolor paper. But, um, it's, it's, it's really cool, especially getting to paint my favorite books. That's, that's just a bonus. I had no idea you could even do those forage paintings with watercolor. Um, that sounds like just such a wild experience to begin with. 
It was definitely some trial and error at first because I had just seen people do it. I didn't have any kind of tutorial. I had no instructions. I had no idea what to do. Um, and so the water control part was a little difficult because obviously you don't want it to bleed through to the pages. And that, you know, requires really clamping the book down tightly. Um, but I was able to make it work. Um, and it it's interesting because painting with watercolor that way, the medium doesn't work the way it normally does, but it still leaves a very light, you know, um, airy kind of painting on it. Um, I don't know how you would do any other medium, honestly, because other mediums like acrylic, they're permanent and they dry, you know, pretty stiff. Watercolors better, I think, for forage painting because you can easily open the book after that. I don't know, I don't know how acrylic. Maybe people do it with acrylic, um, but I think it would be hard to actually open the book because once the paint has dried, it might be stuck together. I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking more of uh, if I would try to do that, I would like make a mistake on the book and then I'd have to go get a new one to start all over again. So <laughs> that was that yeah. was nerve wracking because the books themselves aren't cheap. Like you try to find a nice hardcover copy and you're like, OK, if I mess this up, there goes, you know, 50 bucks <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 stressful, but it's also fun. I I love the idea of these forage paintings. I know uh, we kind of talked about it before when I was booking you for the show, but um, I'm constantly coming back to this idea of of like that that essay Walter Benjamin wrote about um, art in the age of mechanical reproduction and this concept of like art losing its aura when mm -hmm. we're able to reprodu reproduce it just infinitely you know um there's a different experience when you go and you see the the david statue than when you see it on a postcard you know like something is lost in the transferal yeah. and i wonder often about literature because literature can be such a, a very intimate um experiment you know a, a very intimate experience and you know, do we, is there something that is lost when we just kind of mass produce these things? You know, is there something that's lost when you get your cheap paperback with uh, a movie still on the cover? And how do we recover some of that aura? You know, some of this feeling of like, this is art that provokes real genuine experience. Um, how do we restore that? And I kind of feel like the painting that you're doing in a little bit restores some of that aura back to the art, right? It kind of creates this object that is totally singular because you can't reproduce your same painting on that item. Do you feel like there's a transformative process for you when you're doing this art? I do. And it's interesting because this is something I've been thinking a lot about um, just thinking about art and what makes, you know, art high art or things like that. Um, and having just, you know, from running my own business and selling my own artwork, there is something I feel like that's lost. Not that, you know, people don't enjoy, you know, reproductions of artwork. I, I'm sure that they do. But at least for me, the artist myself, when I see a reproduction of my artwork and see it being mass produced, I feel like it immediately loses its value. Um and it makes me sad because I spent so much time working on a piece, um, you know, may, may or not be a wonderful piece. Um, but just the fact that this, this artifact that I created, um, you know, 
now that it can be cheaply reproduced, it almost cheapens the effort that I put into it. And so creating these four edge painted books, there's a sense of, you know, well, I think the best way to describe it, I love Tolkien's concept of being sub-creators. He talked about human beings as, um, you know, sub-creators, you know, within, you know, the world that was created um, and how they can, you know, reflect what, you know, he would call the image of God and man using that creative impulse to create beauty and to preserve beauty. Um, and I think art in this mechanical age of reproduction kind of relinquishes that sub-creative potential to a machine. Um, now the machine's doing the creating instead of me, myself. Um, and so doing these four edge paintings and knowing, okay, this is the only book that's going to be like this. this is the only one that I've made like it. Even if I tried, like you said, to copy it, um, there's never going to be this exact book again. And it gives me more satisfaction in creating it. Um, creating you know, these, these books has actually inspired me to think about rethinking the way I run my art business. Obviously I will, you know, continue to make prints, but I've actually pulled back a little bit from that to kind of reevaluate and think, how do I want to create art and sell art? And I like the idea of selling less prints, selling less reproductions and more originals to kind of re-inspire people to, you know, um, enjoy that, that tangible artifact, that, you know, created item, um, and I think I think they'll end up getting more satisfaction out of it in the end too. Gosh, I as you were talking, I just had this kind of thunderstrike uh, thought um, because you you talk about like giving the power of this kind of sub creator over to a machine, um, and is that not kind of the the existential fear of? this moment with AI and art, you know, um, we have so many writers who are now using chat GPT to just create mm -hmm. their stories for them. There are whole AI, like art generators, right? That just, you give them a prompt and all of a sudden they spit out artwork that mimics human art, but there's something, a, a soulless aspect, you know, something that's missing from it. Do you feel like what you're trying to do with, you know, kind of reclaiming some of that, like only working with originals, you know, it, do you feel like that's a kind of direct pushback against, you know, kind of this soulless art or, or how do you feel about the incorporation of AI art, you know, into our world? It's definitely a form of pushback for me. I, I am not a fan of, um, of the AI uh, art movement. Um, I actually have had issues with that in my own classes too. I, you know, it's, it's difficult to prove, but I think there've been occasions where students have used these kinds of things to turn in projects. And it makes me sad because, um, you know, like I said, that sub creative impulse, regardless of what, you know, your religious beliefs are, I think that this, the moment we cease to create is a moment we have left behind part of our humanity. Um, and I think that, the further we move towards this, um, this drive to replace humanity with with machines, I think we're in danger of losing um, the soul of our society um, because a machine does not have a soul, um, does not have um, a sense of self like a human being does, and so yeah, I, I definitely see art as a way of doing that. Um, 
along those lines, I'm also getting into film photography because I, I love digital photography um, and it's great, but there's something about using those more analog forms of art where I'm actually making a, a photograph. It's not just a digital um, you know, piece of data that I've captured. It's I have actually created a photo like on the piece of film, there's a picture there. Um, so I, I love finding ways of doing that little bit of resistance that I can. Yeah, I uh, kind of going back to the conversation about um, Tolkien's kind of idea of subcreation. Like, I really love that you brought that up because is that not kind of what the ring uh, in his stories was meant to do was to dominate creation, like th to dominate those that the subcreation itself became the thing that would dominate others. And so I think that there's just this big kind of circle when it comes to the, that idea of subcreation and creation. And um, Tolkien himself was creating his an, a mythology for uh, for uh, English people mm -hmm. as like, uh, and that in itself was like a subcreation. So uh, I could probably nerd out and talk about that for hours, but we don't necessarily have to do that. <laughs> but going back to the as as host of the show i kind of want you to though i like I, you you bring up the ring and and it being you know the subcreation that dominates you know the rest of sub subcreation you're blowing my mind right now because that's just like that's like that's the fucking terminator man you know? yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's the uh, um i i i think that that's the thing that's often missed in the legendarium is um that I'll, and again this is barring from a lot of uh anglo saxon um mythology but a lot of this uh this this whole idea of the creator creation uh even looking at it in more of a like religious senses is something that is all throughout the legendarium like you see it in the Silmarillion, where mm -hmm. the whole reason why the elves come over to middle earth in the first place is because they're trying to find the the simmerals the creation of Feanor that was stolen and brought over here and that brings them over as well and they all take a, a, a pledge, an oath to their doom, him and his sons. And uh, it's all about trying to find this 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 thing that was created that could never be recreated again. And so it's, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see just how in-depth that could be. Uh, but kind of back to AI, I, you mentioned that you uh, like photography and are working um, to do some analog photography. Um, I was actually a photography major. My I have a BFA in emphasis of in uh, photography. Oh, that's cool. And spent a lot of time, um, yeah, in in dark rooms, which is a lot of fun. Um, but I I also was kind of thinking with AI, like this type of technology isn't that unlike what a digital camera was, where or even a, a the first cameras, where is it really considered art if you're taking a point in time? But then we were able to kind of move ourselves to using this as a tool. My hope with AI is that we get to that point where we're not necessarily using it as the artist, but as an artist tool. Um, the yeah. problem is, is that a lot of these, uh, uh, and I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this. Um, a lot of these um, AI generated images aren't really being used by an artist as a tool. Instead, they're more being used to supplement or to replace, I guess, that artist. Do you feel like that's, uh, do you feel like that's, I don't know, similar to your experience with photography or your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. As you were talking about that, I just kept thinking about what you said about the ring. Um, <laughs> so 
lots of lots of thoughts going through here so forgive me for rambling <laughs> um in in the lord of the rings in the silmarillion you know the ring was um a way of it, it was something that was created but it was a way of you know gaining power um when the elves would talk about you know magic they differentiated between you know being creative and creating beauty and um creating in the impulse of you know trying to mimic iluvatar you know the god of middle earth whereas sauron and melkor they tried to use their you know creativity their you know god-given creativity instead to find ways of you know gaining power over um middle earth and so what my fear is to use that as an analogy, but my, my fears of the AI is that unless we can figure out how to use it properly, is that it's going to ultimately become something along those lines where, you know, people who don't have, um, you know, who are not using it, who are not artists and they're just merely using it are, you know, going to use it in a way that will take, you know, away from traditional artists. Um, and if we're not careful, it can become a way of, you know, dominating the, the the art market or dominating you know careers and replacing people a way of gaining power um and then at, at the end of the day we no longer appreciate artists and appreciate people who can actually you know create the art um, and we no longer feel like we need that creative process and what are we going to lose if we do that you know there's lots of you know theories we could probably speculate but um that's kind of where i'm at with it when it comes to photography, um, it's interesting that you brought up the history of photography because I remember learning that when I was getting into photography. Um, and I think what the difference is with photography is that even, even though photography is using a machine, you know, a camera to capture a moment, um, there's still a decision being made on the part of the photographer, lots of decisions being made. The decision to, you know, how to expose the photo, what angle to get for the photo. Um, uh, street photographers from like, you know, the forties and fifties. I love studying their, uh, their process. And, um, they had a concept called, I believe it was the decisive moments of when to push the shutter, when to, when are we catching that story? When are we catching a moment? Um, so I feel like even in photography, um, even though there are some parallels between photography and AIR, I think there's still a creative element. There's still a human element that goes into it. Whereas, with AI, I feel like it's very, very slim and we're in danger of losing it altogether. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess I should just go on record for the podcast. I am not in favor of AI art. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here to defend it. I just thought it was a good parallel with photography. Uh, it, but to your is. point, uh, to your point, like you're, you're right with the with a with a photographer, um, you have that decisive moment to then take the photo, and that in itself is like a kind of a completion of the art in a way. Mm -hmm. I think what bothers me the most with AI is that, um, well, sorry, these AI artists is that it's a consuming art process where mm -hmm. this AI is not generating this on by itself. It is taking inspiration from others mm -hmm. that have created real art mm -hmm. and to kind of trevor's point if you're saying that's like the the output of the machine right you kind of learn you kind of lose the aura of this piece of art that you can interact with because it's a consuming kind of practice rather than um, this sub creation or creation like practice um yeah, I, I'm going to dive in here uh, because this <laughs> I, my, my brain is just firing on all cylinders right now. I swear <laughs> to God. 
Um, just hearing you guys talk is is bringing up just so much stuff. This is exactly what I love doing, talking about literature, you know, to begin with, because I think that literature has the power to reach into our humanness mm -hmm. and try to draw it out for us, you know, externalize it so that we can understand it a little bit more. What Walter Benjamin was talking about a lot of the time in in his uh, original essay, because he was talking specifically about film, about photography, um, and and about you know the ability to just kind of create these prints just all over the place, because that was the new technology for his yeah. moment, right? Yeah. Um, and he he talks a lot about this idea of the aura of art, and he reflects back on the aura being a religious experience. You know, the the um, this relationship of of creation to creator, right? Um, and part of what we're doing, you know, to draw from Tolkien as sub creators, is to mimic that relationship between creation and creator. Mm -hmm. So, in a lot of religious artwork, right, what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring back the inspiration, the idea of awe, right? at the creation because if we can be in awe of um a piece of art it then it mimics the experience of experiencing god right that's the whole idea the whole concept so you know we ask about like what is the aura of ai art you know what is this inspiring about us ourselves our relationship to to each other our relationship to creation our, our relationship to and i'm not necessarily you know saying like we have to all be worshiping god that is definitely not who i am but I, you know there i do think like our relationship to the other right our relationship to to the external it's so important for us to experience something outside of the self right because i think that brings us back closer to community closer to the communal so you see a giant ass cathedral right it's meant to be like holy cow you know look at at what we managed to create together you know look at at, at the thing that that um it is is just from us and is that being mirrored in ai art i don't i don't believe that it is, you know, I, th mm -hmm. I think there's some missing element. Maybe it is the human soul of the equation. And that's kind of what, you know, Walter Benjamin was, was concerned with. And apparently Tolkien too. I, I find this totally fascinating. <laughs> oh my goodness. So many thoughts. Um, all the things that you're saying, these are, these are some of my like research interests that I'm hoping to tie together in some kind of thesis for my, for my PhD. <laughs> um, I think, I think what you're hitting at is that you know your your idea that we we, we our experience of art and that all that we experience is similar to our you know religious experiences. You're I think you're exactly right, and I think what's happening with our you know creation of art and the way it's you know shifting and changing in this you know this technological AI age is that we're losing that transcendence, and I think it comes from. A denial that there is even a transcendent. If we don't, if we deny that there's a transcendent, if we deny that there is an other, then it's going to be reflected in our art and our art is going to be cheapened and it's going to be shallow and it's not going to give us, um, you know, that feeling of awe. Um, sort of a side tangent, I have been thinking about 
the the idea of you know AI and like you know the the whole concept of the metaverse that was being thrown around with Facebook and all that stuff. <laughs> um, and I feel like we're we're in a, a a second Copernican shift because with the original Copernican shift, we went from a medieval view of the way the cosmos was ordered. Um, it was you know seen as a divinely ordered you know cosmos of you know Earth being the center of the you know the solar system and all these different hierarchical levels of, you know, where God and the angels dwelt. Mm. And then when the Copernican shift happened and we had a more heliocentric, you know, view of the uh, solar system, that began a shift moving away from seeing, you know, the transcendent in creation and moving more towards a scientific understanding of creation for better or for worse. Mm. Um, now I feel like we're moving towards a, a very digital, a very, you know, a metaverse kind of existence where we're no longer, um, you know, either we're moving away from real world experiences and immersing ourselves more and more in digital spaces and digital worlds. And I think that's being reflected in this, you know, this drive for creating AI art. Um, and I think that's why it feels so empty and why so many people are bothered by it, but don't always know how to pinpoint what's what's going on with it. Yeah, I, I think too, yeah. about the way that this power is being wielded, you know, I, I, I feel like one of the scariest things for me is not just, not just the creation of the thing, right? Not it's it's not just the way that, you know, oh, there's a ring that's been crafted. It, it it's like you know this ring is put to nefarious purpose, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's got a lot of power, and and so like who is wielding it? And I, I constantly think about the way that our society is driven by consumerism, by capitalism, mm -hmm. you know, and the way that um, we you know, are just kind of forced into this experience where like all of our agency is being taken from us, you know, by one actor or another. You think of we're the letting that, it happen. <laughs> yeah. You think of, of the people who are being replaced, you know, by these, these machines, whether those machines be purely digital, can you even call that a machine to begin with? I don't even mm -hmm. know. Is is that an entity at all? Um, or, you know, the, the, the mechanical things, the, 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 the fact that we've lost an entire industry in this country, um, you know, by shifting it, shifting that labor overseas or replacing that labor with with machines that can do it more efficiently. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I I feel like there's an existential terror here in this moment, you yeah. know, of like losing the yeah. humanness, losing our space to the things that are wielded for the profit of few, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, over over the benefit of everyone. So to pull in some more Tolkien here, <laughs> um, first of all, I don't know if you know, he was a Luddite. He was very anti-technology. I did not know that. That's yeah, he was he that. was a Luddite. Um, so which which is important for understanding his work and understanding his view like of what the ring represents. Um, but this whole idea of, you know, us being replaced and you know, us losing some of our humanity. So according to the legendarium, orcs were actually distorted elves melkor and sauron uh they you know they didn't have the power of creating like you know aluvatar did and so they would just distort um his you know his creation his original creation so they would take the elves and you know just destroy them and make these monstrous creatures from them um and so i feel like you can make some kind of parallels between that it's like <laughs> we're we're taking this technology and creating something that's not human and that's more efficient than than we are and um yeah it's kind of a scary kind of a scary thing 
Yeah, so Tolkien I, had uh, he kind of wrote himself into a corner a little bit because he didn't necessarily know what to do with the humanity of um, orcs, uh, especially after the Silmarillion was was written. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he there's a lot of letters where he talks about that specifically regarding um, do orcs are orcs a product of the 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 malice and evil um, that's bred into them or if they are to be removed from that, like, are they inherently evil? Mm-hmm. And that was a, a thing that he wrestled with, uh, given his, his, um, like spiritual beliefs as well. Like that's just something he really wrestled with. And, um, you can kind of see that in some instances and in orcs in the book and stuff. But, um, uh, I do want to say real quick that, uh, I think we established that, uh, in our parallels of our world versus, um, uh, uh Middle Earth that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is Sauron. Is that what we stumbled on? <laughs> He's wielding the machine, the ring against us. Is that with the metaverse? Just want to. I don't have a that. huge problem with that analogy. So, <laughs> I mean, what I'm hearing is that uh, really I need to correct the problem that I've I've not read all of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I I need to fix that immediately. Take a year, read the Lord of the Rings, read the Silmarillion, then go to the Unfinished Tales, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the sky's the limit. Yeah, Colin, when he started the Silmarillion, he he was like live tweeting me practically the the whole time, or like live texting me, just uh, constantly talking about his new relevations. Uh, oh, yeah, it's it's, it's nuts. Honestly, it's kind of like reading a, a textbook um, rather than an actual story. Yeah, it's like reading the Old Testament. I mean, it's <laughs> it's incredible. I actually um, I found a way to to talk about the Silmarillion. And when I was doing philosophy uh, last semester, we were in a I was in a philosophy of religion class, and we were talking about the problem of evil. And so basically, I took the Silmarillion and did a philosophical analysis of it, looking at like his theology and ways he was, you know, trying to understand what is evil, where did evil come from, and basically giving Tolkien's account of where did evil come from, you know, how do we, you know, reconcile God and evil and all these different, it was the best fun I've ever had writing a paper. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> read, amazing. Got to read That's the Silmarillion. Amazing. Yeah, it was so much fun. <laughs> so um, just to, to kind of, we've had so much conversation, I'm sure we could just continue to go on and on and on. Um, but I, I do feel like, um, it's time to kind of wrap this episode. So where can people find more of your artwork in, uh, you know, these online spaces that are so scary? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's like, despite my, uh, my dislike of the, uh, the machine, I kind of have to use it sometimes. Um, so, um, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, Elfshine Cottage Art is on Instagram. Um, but to purchase my art right now, I'm just selling on Etsy. I do have a website too, um, but it's more like a landing page for people to, you know, see who I am, kind of get a deeper bio about me and look at more archives of my artwork. Um, but as far as, you know, purchasing things, I, I use Etsy. It's it's the easiest. <laughs> um, and then for my book, I sell the book on Etsy, but it's primarily sold um, through Barnes & Noble. Yeah, I will put a link to the book uh, and where you can purchase it because it can be a little bit tricky to find um, just yeah. through search engines. Um, but I will put a link in our show description. So if you're interested in reading The Wanderer, a new translation for Middle Earth readers, um, you can find the link in the description to this episode below. Uh, I highly recommend that you get this book. Um, it's 
absolutely gorgeous for one thing. Um, but I also think that as we've discussed, it's a great reflection, I think, on the relationship between modern fantasy and old English. Do you have any additional translation projects that you're kind of mulling about right now? Anything on the horizon that we should be watching out for? So nothing is in the works at the moment. Um, I am, you know, brainstorming different ideas. I would love to do, you know, more old English poems and illustrate those as well. Um, I just love, I love old English culture. I love um, so many of the different poems. So I'd like to do the same thing. Um, someday I would also love to tackle Beowulf. I would love to do my own <laughs> translation of Beowulf, but that's going to be like, you know, a lifelong project. So <laughs> nothing specific, but um, when projects do come up, the best way to find out about them is, is probably on my, my Instagram. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was just an immense pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thank you also, Colin, for co-hosting and adding your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. I, I truly enjoyed it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. I can't wait to be back for the next episode where we cover cryptocurrencies and other <laughs> scary <laughs> future tech things. Let's just go through everything that Tolkien's <laughs> Luddite heart would love to just hate on. <laughs> All right. Thank you both.